Let us open the Holy Scriptures together once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read the whole chapter, and tonight the text will be verse 13, the last verse of the chapter. We hear the word of God in 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not, its, envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now the text. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sermon tonight, we come to the last verse of the Bible's great chapter on charity, that is on the wonderful subject of Christian love. Though the whole Bible has woven through it instruction about Christian love, this chapter focuses on the essence, the nature, and the character of love in such a beautiful way, in such a focused way. It's a subject that is worth an entire chapter of the Scriptures. The subject of love is worth it because love is the will of God for us as His redeemed people. The summary of the whole law, God's will for your life and mine, how we are to live is love. You think in the Gospel of John, in the 14th and 15th chapter, where Jesus teaches his disciples that this is how they are identified. This is how a disciple of Jesus Christ is recognized. They love one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul has been impressing this upon 
the Corinthian believers who needed that instruction because of their tendency to prize other spiritual gifts too highly to the neglect of love. And now in the last verse of the chapter, Paul comes to his grand conclusion in which he sets before us the supreme greatness of love. He sets before us a triad of beautiful spiritual gifts. The greatest of all spiritual gifts, you might say. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul says, the Spirit says through him, the greatest of these is love. And so there's a marvelous word for us tonight. A very instructive word that has much to tell us about what it is to be a Christian. And much to tell us about the place that love ought to occupy in our lives. Christian life is a life of faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So let's enter into this text and explore what the Spirit has for the church to hear and to learn yet today. Our theme is the greatest of these is love. The first point is the three that abide. We will look at these three graces that verse 13 points out. Then in the second place, we will look at the fact that the greatest of these is love. And then thirdly, we will conclude with a few applications of this verse as well as the whole chapter to our Christian lives yet in this world as we continue our earthly pilgrimage towards heaven. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. So begins our text. It sets before us these three, a triad of Christian virtues. And by that word virtue, we mean a fruit of the Spirit, a grace of God worked in us. Faith, hope, and love are not things of human origin. They are gifts of the Spirit, sovereignly, graciously worked in us by the operation of the Spirit. Only the elect child of God who has been regenerated by the Spirit has these gifts of true faith, true hope, and true love. As gifts of God worked in us by the Spirit, they are blessings which have been merited by Jesus Christ. That's how we should think about faith, hope, and love, and the faith that you have, the hope that you have, the true Christian love that you have. It is yours, it has been given you, it has been worked in you because Jesus suffered and died upon the cross of Calvary to earn it for you. And having earned it for you, He has sent His Spirit to dwell in your heart that the Spirit might bring you those blessings He has earned for you and work them in you. The text, as it sets before us, faith, hope, and love, text is talking about three of the most precious gifts that God gives us in this life. These are true treasures. If you think about what you treasure, what you hold to be so very precious to you, may this verse list the things that are at the top of your list. Faith, hope, Love. Let's briefly talk about those three gifts of God, what they are. 
And as we talk about what they are, we see why they are so precious. Faith. We know what faith is because our catechism drawing from the Scriptures gives us such a succinct and yet comprehensive summary of true faith. Faith is a certain knowledge of God whereby I hold for truth all that He has revealed in His Word as well as an assured confidence that is trust in God. That definition of faith given by our catechism has ample biblical proof. For example, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, where the Apostle Paul says, For I know whom I have believed. There is faith as knowledge. I know whom I have believed. It's a personal knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. But then he goes on in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 to say, And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I am persuaded, and the idea of am persuaded is conviction, confidence. I trust this God that I know. Faith is knowledge, and on the basis of that knowledge, there is trust, and that makes sense. You only trust someone that you know, right? But when you know someone, you know their character, you know their goodwill towards you, you trust them, and so it is with God. When you think of Hebrews 11, verse 1, to paraphrase that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And a more literal rendering of that verse would be faith is the confidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen, bringing out again that aspect of trust. That, that's what faith is. Knowledge of God as revealed in His Word in the face of Jesus Christ and trust, confidence in Him. That is a gift of God. Perhaps your minds go to Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Now that through faith in Ephesians 2, verse 8, points out to us the special place that faith has. It's a special gift of God that God has designed to be the instrument whereby we receive the blessings of Christ and appropriate Christ in all His benefits. That's what we mean when we speak of saving faith. The idea is not that faith in it of itself saves us. But the idea is this, that faith connects us to Christ, who is the one who saves us. Think of Belgic Confession, Article 22. Our Belgic Confession describes the unique role of faith in, in very beautiful and theologically clear language. Article 22 says this of faith, that it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ our righteousness. Faith is not what saves us in and of itself. Christ saves us, but faith is the means God has given us by which we embrace Christ. The same article goes on to describe faith as the instrument that keeps us in communion with Him and all His benefits. What a precious thing. Is there any earthly treasure, anything you can have in this world that is more precious than that? Faith? Application for young people. Young adults, really all of us, because we never outgrow this temptation. The temptation to close our spiritual eyes and fixate on things here below. The devil wants us to do that. 
He wants us to fixate on temporal things that moth and rust will one day destroy or thieves will break through and steal or that we will eventually lose on the day of our death. He wants us to put our trust in those things. He wants us to set our delight in those things, make those things our treasure. But what are those things compared to a gift such as this? Faith by which we know the one true God. Faith the God-designed means by which we are connected to Christ so that we receive from Him all of the blessings of salvation. How precious is faith. Young people, there's nothing more important than learning the faith. Don't cherish or seek anything more than the faith. You can lose everything in this world. You can live in a shack with nothing but stale bread and water. But if you have faith and know this God, you are rich. Faith. The first of this triad the text presents to us. From there, the apostle mentions hope. Hope. Hope is another gift of God that is connected with faith. Hope arises out of faith's knowledge and trust in God. And that makes sense. You hope in one that you know and trust. Hope can be defined simply as the earnest expectation of great good that is coming to you. And it's certain, it's sure that that great good is going to come to you and that you are going to possess it and you are going to enjoy it. And so you have a certain and an earnest expectation of that future good. Hope, too, is a gift of God. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says that we are begotten again unto a lively hope. We've been regenerated by the Spirit unto a lively, a living hope. And Romans 15 verse 13 refers to our God as the God of hope. The idea being God is the source of all true hope. The world says there are lots of other things you can hope in. You can hope in government. You can hope in the progress of modern society. You can hope in this, that, or the other thing. But none of those things are true hopes. The one and only source of true hope is the God of hope. Our God, who we know by faith. Hope in the Bible is such a beautiful thing. Hope, true Christian hope, is not wishful thinking. We often use the word hope that way, to express a wish that really doesn't have any certainty. Perhaps you have to take a trip this week, and you say, I hope the traffic isn't too bad. You're expressing your desire... You really want light traffic, but you have no control over that. There's no certainty that the traffic is going to be light. In fact, it's very likely that traffic might be heavy, depending on what time you take that trip. But biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is certain. And it's certain because of the one in whom we hope. The God of hope. The I am that I am who is unchanging in His faithfulness towards His people in Jesus Christ, who is the God, Titus 1 verse 2 says, who cannot lie, who always keeps His promises, who always makes good on His word, who never leaves, who never forsakes His people, because He is trustworthy and we know Him, we have a hope that is certain, sure, 
Christian hope is rock solid because it's rooted in Jehovah God who is the rock. Ultimately, the certainty of our hope rests in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross puts an end to every doubt or worry about whether that future good is really going to come to me. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered and died to pay for the sins of His elect people, for your sins, believer, and for my sins. And through His atoning work on the cross, Jesus earned for you all spiritual blessings, as Ephesians 1 verse 3 says. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That's why you can be certain that that good will come to you. Jesus earned it for you. And it would be an injustice to Jesus Christ if the good He earned for you never comes to you. The certainty of your hope rests in the cross of Christ. What is that good? We've talked about what hope is. Certain expectation, an earnest expectation of good that is coming to me, good that is certain, but what is that good? It's much more than an increase in pay. It's much more than any good thing of this life. The good that is coming to the child of God is nothing less than full and final salvation from sin and everlasting life. The Bible from cover to cover, describes our Christian hope in glorious terms. And here's just a sample. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1 says, Jesus Himself is our hope. And that makes sense with what we saw last time in verse 12, that heavenly life will be characterized by this, dwelling with God and seeing Him face to face in Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hope. We belong to Him body and soul. And the great good that is in store for us, the great good that He's earned for us, is life with Him forevermore, face to face. Believer, that's what you've got coming. Thus, later in the book of Titus, our hope is described as hope of eternal life. Romans 8 verse 23 describes our hope as hope for our final adoption and the redemption of our body. 1 Peter 1 verses 4 and 5 describes our hope as an imperishable inheritance stored up for us in heaven. An inheritance that has been earned and obtained by the work of our older brother, Christ Jesus, who won that inheritance through His work on the cross and now shares it with His brothers and sisters, the adopted children of God by grace. Ultimately, our hope, the substance of our hope, is described in Romans 5 verse 2, which speaks of hope of the glory of God. For the child of God, he yearns for nothing more than for God's name to be glorified. And that will be a significant dimension of heavenly life, beholding the glory of God. There's more to that. When Romans 5 verse 2 speaks of hope of the glory of God, it's especially focusing our attention on the fact that in heaven we shall share in that glory. We shall see God face to face in the face of Jesus Christ. We shall be glorified fully. And that, that is what we've got coming. That is the good that is coming. 
And so we see how wonderful a gift hope is. So precious. So very precious. The last of this blessed triad that the text points out to us is love. We can be briefer here because the whole chapter has been focusing our attention on love. And we looked at love in the sermon last Sunday night. Love. Love, true love, is not merely a feeling, though true love does have a powerful emotional element to it. But true love is something deeper and more abiding. True biblical love is the committed pursuit of the true good of another person. That's what love is in its essence. The committed pursuit of the true good of another person. And in that committed pursuit of my neighbor's good, I give of myself to bless them. Love gives. The focus of love is not what I can get from someone, what I can take from someone, how someone else makes me feel, but the priority of love is giving of myself to bless them. And true love finds its joy in blessing the one that you love. Apply that to our relationships. That's what love looks like. Love is self-giving. Love delights to give of self, to pursue and to secure what is truly good for the other people God has put in my life, whether it's my spouse, whether it's my children, whether it's my fellow church member, whether it's the neighbor next door or the co-worker at work. Love pursues their true good. And love, if it can, seeks fellowship with the person that is loved through communication, through time spent together. What a beautiful thing love is. Like hope, this true love springs from faith. When you know God, and when you by faith perceive the love of God for you, His love which is first, the effect, the outgrowth of faith perceiving the love of God is that love is kindled in my heart for God and for my neighbor. This idea comes out quite clearly in 1 John, which is, you might say, a whole Bible book about Christian love. That's one of the outstanding features of the book of 1 John. 1 John verse 4 1 John verse 4, 10 and 11. Herein is love. The Bible is going to show us what true love looks like. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. God loved us first. And this is how He shows His love. This is really where you see the essence of love. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There you see the different elements of our definition. God was committed in his pursuit of our true good. And our true good is our eternal salvation. We are unworthy of it. He did not set his love upon us because we were so great or because there was something so desirable in us 
or because we earned it. No, as sinners, we deserve the very opposite of his love. As sinners, we deserve to be cast away from him, exiled from his fellowship. We deserve to be the eternal objects of his holy wrath. But his love is sovereign and free. And out of the infinite goodness of his divine heart, even before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon his elect in Jesus Christ. And in the fullness of time, he sent Jesus into the world to redeem his elect people. And in the sending of Jesus, and in the work of Jesus on the cross, we see what love is. The committed pursuit of our true good through the giving of self. That was Jesus' whole life and ministry. That was the cross. That's costly love. Jesus gave everything. He suffered hell for his people in order that he might draw us and bring us infallibly into his everlasting fellowship. That's love. God shows us what love is. And as 1 John 4 verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The Christian perceiving that love of God and experiencing that love by the work of the Spirit in his heart, seeing and learning of that love in the Word of God as the love of God is reflected to us here in the mirror of Scripture, our response is to love God and to love one another with a love that is patterned after God's love. How do you love your spouse? How do you love your children? How do you love your brother, your sister, your neighbor? Look at God. Look at how He treated you, regardless of your unworthiness. And as Jesus said at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, go, do thou likewise. Faith, hope, love. These three. How precious are these gifts of God. But now we come to the verb of the text. Abide. That abide. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. The fascinating teaching of our text is that these three most precious gifts of God earned for us by Jesus Christ, wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, are gifts that endure forever. They abide through this life because the Holy Spirit, who authored them, continues to cultivate them and cause them to grow and to come to expression in our earthly lives. But they endure all the way into heaven. Just as the text last Sunday night gave us a glimpse of heaven, so too verse 13. Faith, hope, love. These three abide. Now, that's not always how this text has been interpreted. There is a common interpretation of the text that goes something like this. Faith and hope come to an end and only love abides forever. And the line of reasoning behind that interpretation is that the text says love is the greatest. And so the greatest is the one that continues into the world to come into heaven. Faith and hope are just for this life and in this world and they pass away. 
After all, will not faith become sight and thus cease? Will not hope be fulfilled when we reach heaven and thus fall away? Indeed, a prominent commentator has said something along these lines, that when we get to heaven, there will be no more room for faith because faith will have become sight and hope will be fulfilled. There will only be room for love. Faith and hope pass away. This is a common interpretation, and perhaps we've heard it, but it doesn't fit exactly with the text. It doesn't do full justice to the grammar and the teaching of this text, which says, three abide. Just read verse 13 without any preconceived notions and then ask yourself the question, what is the Spirit teaching abides? And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. The plain reading of the text is that these three abide. And that's what the grammar makes clear. In the grammar of the text, faith, hope, love, these three are all the subject of the single verb abide. And thus, the text makes very clear that it is teaching something more. It's teaching something more than that Christian love abides forever. But in a certain sense, faith and hope likewise abide. These three. That's what the grammar of the text makes clear. So what about the Bible's teaching that faith will become sight, based on 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Doesn't that mean faith will come to an end and pass away? Well, to be sure, in heaven, in the world to come, faith will be changed. It will be fulfilled, and certain aspects of faith, here and now, will not be there anymore in heaven. You go back to Hebrews 11, verse 1, the second part of the verse, which speaks of faith as the evidence of things unseen, the conviction of things unseen. In heaven, we will see face to face. There will not be unseen anymore, at least not in the way it is now. But does that mean faith will be totally abolished in heaven? Remember, faith is certain knowledge, assured confidence. Does that go away? Verse 12 speaks of heavenly life as knowing God even as we are known. That's faith made perfect. Yes, faith is changed. Faith becomes sight. Our knowledge is made full and the present form of our knowledge, which is only derived from the mirror of the Scriptures, will pass away. But that doesn't mean that faith itself will be totally abolished. Likewise, assured confidence. When we get to heaven, do we stop trusting God? Of course not. In heaven, when at last we are made perfect, we will trust God more fully than ever before. And so, yes, in heaven, faith becomes sight. But faith becoming sight doesn't mean the total abolition of faith, but it means the fulfillment of faith, the bringing of faith to its highest perfection. These three abide. What about hope? 
Doesn't hope come to an end when we reach heaven? After all, what more will there be to hope for when we have received and are enjoying that imperishable inheritance in heavenly life? Besides, Romans 8 verse 24 says that hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? And here here again we see there's truth to the fact that hope will be radically changed in heaven. Indeed, when we reach heavenly glory, we will no longer hope for what we hope for now because we will have it and we will be enjoying it. The fullness of our salvation, the complete deliverance from all of our sins, the glory of God, we will enjoy it. But does that mean there will be nothing more to hope for? Will we ever see all that there is to see of God? In heaven, in the endless ages of heaven, will you ever exhaust the storehouse of His goodness? And the answer is no. The storehouse of the goodness of the infinite God cannot be exhausted. The depths of God can never be fully explored. The riches of God can never be fully, completely grasped and comprehended. The point being, Even in heaven, there will always be more of the goodness of God to hope for, to anticipate, and to look forward to enjoying. Hope as it is now, yes, will pass away, but hope will not be entirely abolished because for eternity and heavenly glory, we will always be able to look forward to more of the marvelous glory and goodness of God. That helps us Be excited about heaven, doesn't it? Maybe when we were children, heaven sounded like kind of a boring place. Everything's going to be perfect, so that means there's going to be no change, right? Nothing's going to happen. It might be an eternal church service where we just sing for endless ages. Undoubtedly, there will be singing in heaven. But heaven will not be everlasting sameness. It will not be lifeless stillness. It will be vibrant. It will be lively Fullness overflowing unto yet greater fullness. That cup of bliss, that cup spoken about in Psalm 23, that runneth over. In heaven, we're never going to get to a point where that cup stops running over. There will always be more and more and more. And doesn't that expand the heart with joy and anticipation? Think about what heaven will be like. If God's mercies are new every morning for us here and now, His goodness and His glories will be new for us every morning, then and there. Hope will change, but hope abides yet in heavenly glory. 
Thus, these three, to wrap up the first point, these three that abide give us another one of the Bible's most beautiful glimpses into heaven. Verse 12 gave us a glimpse. Revelation 21, a passage we know very well, gives us a glimpse. So does 1 Corinthians 13, 13. What will heaven be like? Heaven will be life where faith is made perfect. Back to verse 12. I will know God even as also I am known intimately, perfectly, without confusion, without error, without sin, without misjudgment, without any doubt or weakness. I will know Him. And I will abide in that beautiful, fruitful, joyous relationship with Him. I will trust Him fully, perfectly, without doubt. Gone will be those doubts, those weaknesses of my faith that so often afflict me here and now, that draw from my heart and from my mouth that prayer, Lord, I believe, help Thou my unbelief. Heaven, perfect knowledge, perfect trust, faith made perfect. Heaven will be a world, a life of hope made perfect. We will have the fullness of our salvation. All that we hope for now, we will possess and enjoy. And yet, there will always be that joyful anticipation of the good that God has yet in store for His people. There will be the anticipation of the eternal unfolding of that blessed covenant life that God has planned for His saints in glory. There will be always something to look forward to. That's what heaven will be. And heaven will be a world, a life, a communion marked by love made perfect. Love for God. At last, we will love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly without our hearts being tugged away to an idol or some other object of our love. We will be freed from sin and that will be the greatest liberty of the child of God. Freed from sin. Freed from our sinful nature which is prone to hate God. That will be pure joy. Loving God perfectly. And loving our neighbor our neighbor in heaven, that is, our fellow elect saints, the communion of the saints which God gathers in this world, which He turns into His covenant family, the family that will last forever. And that love which He has authored in our hearts, which abides, that love will be the bond of perfectness that knits us together forever. Sinless love. Oh, does that not stir your heart with longing? We won't hurt each other anymore. We won't fight anymore. We won't say harsh, bitter words to each other anymore. We won't be divided from each other anymore. We won't have squabbles anymore. Strained relationships in family and in church will be gone, will be mended, will be repaired. That person that hurt you so bad in this life, perhaps a person that's in the church, 
You will be fully reconciled with them. Your brother, your sister. All of those effects, all of those pains of sin, all of those things that disrupt the communion of the saints here below will be gone. And love made perfect will abide. And all of us in that perfection will be entirely committed in our pursuit of one another's good. We will delight to give of ourselves to one another. We will enjoy the rich, unhindered fellowship of the body of Christ forevermore. That's heaven. What a glorious thing to look forward to. Those are the three that abide. But while there are three that abide, there is one that is the greatest of these. And that's the summary of the whole chapter with which Paul powerfully concludes. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And you see what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's showing us just how great love is. By comparing it and contrasting it to the two other greatest things there are. Faith and hope. Is there anything greater than faith or hope? No. We've already seen how precious faith and hope are. And Paul is saying, the greatest even of these, the greatest of this precious triad is love. Let's briefly look again at faith and hope so that it may be pressed upon us just how precious they are, so that we can see the vastness of the greatness of love. Faith is exceeding great. It's the highest form of knowledge, higher than any other form of knowledge in this world. Faith perceives and understands spiritual things. Faith looks at things beyond the reach of our earthly senses. Faith is able to see God reflected in His Word. Faith is spiritual vision. The highest form of knowledge. The scoffers of our modern age, they like to laugh at faith, but they know not of what they speak. In fact, they betray their folly when they make fun of faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Don't ever concede to the atheist or the unbeliever that faith is something silly. That faith is covering your eyes and sticking your fingers in your ears and saying, I'm just going to believe something that's ridiculous despite evidence. No, faith is the most rational thing there is. Faith recognizes that there is a God We can see His handiwork all around us and He has spoken to us in His Word and the fact that there is a God means He ought to be listened to. Faith is the highest form of knowledge, not something silly. There's nothing wiser, more prudent than to believe in the one true and living God, the Creator of all things and the Judge of all men before whom every moral, rational creature will one day stand. That God has given us faith by which we know Him. How great. How great is faith as that sole instrument by which we embrace Christ and receive His blessings. That's something unique about faith. Hope, love, 
They are not the instruments by which we receive blessings from Christ. We are not justified by faith, or I'm sorry, we are not justified by hope. We are not justified by love. We are justified by faith alone. It's a special gift of God. It's the God-designed instrument by which we receive the blessings of Christ. That's faith's unique function. That hope and love does not have and cannot have. Faith is unique. Faith is precious. So much so that the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians 3 verse 8, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And that's the knowledge of faith. Hope too. Think about hope again. How great is hope? Hope enables you to endure adversity without falling into despair. Hope enables you to wait patiently for deliverance. Hope gives joy and peace amidst the storms of life. Hope is the anchor of the... Without hope you cannot survive, but with true hope you can endure anything. What can possibly be greater than faith or hope? The text says... Only one thing, only one gift, one gift is chief, one gift reigns supreme among all of the gifts of God to His people. The greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest of the greatest. Love is the best of the best. Love outranks even faith and hope in excellency. And so that leads to the question, why or in what ways is love the greatest of these? Three main things can be said here. First, love is the greatest of these because when we are filled with love, we look like God. You see, God works love in us. And as He is working love in us, He is changing us into His image from glory to glory. Faith and hope both aim at love. Both faith and hope have their ultimate goal in love. Think about it. Knowing God, trusting Him, aims ultimately at abiding in a relationship of love with Him. Our hope. What is the object of our hope? The glory of God. The heart of which is living in a relationship of love with God. Love is God's ultimate purpose for us. Love is the goal of all of His saving work in us. Love reigns supreme. As God works love in us, He is making us to look like Him spiritually. God doesn't have faith. God doesn't have hope. 1 John 4 says God is love. Now, of course, God is all of His attributes. God is wisdom. God is grace, but it is not coincidental that the Scriptures emphasize this, God 
is love. That gets at the heart of who God is in Himself. He is a God of love. He is a relational God. And here's where that warm doctrine of the Trinity comes into the picture. God is one God. And yet He is three distinct divine persons who are that one God, who equally share that one divine essence. One God, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are that one God. And that means our God isn't some abstract power. He's not a force. He's not an eternally isolated and relationshipless being. But He is the eternal God of everlasting love and fellowship within Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live together in that one divine being in love. God is a God of love within Himself. That's who He is. And His saving work has this great aim and goal with us. To make us like Him. Of course, we can never be exactly like Him. We will never be deified. We will always remain creatures. But God's saving work aims at making us like Him in a creaturely way and in a creaturely measure. God is love. And in His love, He saves us through Jesus Christ. And the effect of His saving work in Jesus Christ is to redeem us into a relationship of love with Himself. His grace works love. That's His goal. And thus, love is the greatest of these. Because when we are filled with love, we look like God, who is the God of love within Himself. What a marvelous thing. Secondly, and flowing out of the first reason why love is the greatest, is this. Love is the heart of God's covenant. And that makes sense, does it not? God's covenant, the Scriptures reveal, are His purpose for time and history. All things serve the realization and the perfection of His everlasting covenant of grace. That is how God has chosen sovereignly to supremely glorify Himself forevermore. Through the establishment, the realization, and the perfection of a covenant with His elect people through Jesus Christ. What is the covenant? We all know the definition, the warm definition of God's covenant. It's a relationship of unconditional love, friendship, and fellowship that God establishes with His elect people. Love is at the center of the covenant. Covenant life is living with God in love. That's why love is the greatest of these. Because love characterizes the covenant. Love is the essence of the covenant. 1 John 4, verse 16. These are profound words. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Those are words we cannot get to the bottom of in this lifetime, so profound are they. But for our purposes tonight, see the point. Love is at the heart of God's covenant, His purpose for us. That fits with all of the, the biblical pictures of the covenant, right? 
What is the outstanding picture, earthly picture of the covenant? Marriage, which is a relationship of love. The consummation of all things in the book of Revelation is inaugurated by the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus' relationship with his, with his church is the marriage, a relationship of love. Heaven in John 14 is described as life in the Father's house of many mansions. What characterizes a good home? Love. Love. And so you see, these three abide. Faith, hope, charity. But the greatest of these is charity. Charity is the covenant life of heaven that we will enjoy for eternity future that will never get old. Third, third reason why love is the greatest of these. First, when we're filled with love, God is making us look like Him. Second, love is at the heart of the covenant. And third, love is the greatest because it extends outside of ourselves and benefits others. And here again, love looks like God. God, in His grace and His love towards us, is a God who gives. Love gives. Faith and hope receive. Faith is the hand and mouth of the soul by which we receive from God. Hope anticipates receiving something good in the future. But love gives. Love gives. And as our Lord Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. Again, you see how love is God's great aim. His goal in His saving work for us. We receive abundantly from Him all of the benefits of salvation through Jesus Christ in order that we might love God forever and love one another forever. We receive in order that having received, in love we may give. Having received from God, our response is to render unto Him grateful returns of ardent love, our praise, our service for the glory of His name. Having received so much of God, we show our thankfulness by giving to one another, serving one another. Love is the whole duty of man. It's the greatest of these three graces best of the best. So what does this all mean for us? A few applications to conclude. Faith, hope, love, these three abide. These three are most precious. Beloved, this is what the Christian life should be about. Our text, in a wonderful way, summarizes what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to believe in Christ, to hope in Christ, and to love Christ and love one another. 
If you had to explain to someone who does not know much about the Christian faith what the Christian faith is and what the Christian life is like, you could very well point them to this text and say, this is what it is to be a Christian. Having been saved by the God who first loved me, having been saved by my Savior Jesus Christ who suffered and died to pay for my sins, the Christian life is a life of faith, hope, and love. As we live in the school of Jesus Christ as His disciples in this world, let these things be what you major in. Every Christian in the school of Christ ought to be a triple major, majoring in faith, hope, and love. These are most important. Yes, God gives so many other gifts. They're described in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and some of them are described in chapter 13 as well. Some of the other very important gifts, knowledge, prophecy, the ability to proclaim and explain the Word of God. Those are important and they have their use in this world. But there's three that are most important of all. Three things that ought to be our concern and priority as God's people. Faith, hope, love. Are we seeking those things? Are we seeking to grow in faith, hope, and in love? Is your life, is my life characterized by these most precious of God's gifts? So that they have the pride of place. They shine brightly in my life. Faith, hope, love. These are the three things that are the marks of spiritual health. The ministry of the church, the preaching of the gospel, the good work of the Christian school, the teaching and instruction and discipline of parents. All of it should aim at the cultivation and the growth of faith, hope, love. Parents, what do you want to impart to your children above all? Yes, you want to get them off to a good start in this world. You want to set them up to be successful. There's many good things you want to give them. But let this be number one. That you, by the grace of God, impart to them faith, hope, love. That you exemplify faith, hope, and love to them. Show them in your words and your conduct what these three great virtues are. Pointing them to Jesus Christ, ever to Christ who is the author and the source of them. But the greatest of these is love. There's application there too. Love is to be given the chief place in our lives. Love is to be pursued above every good gift. Love is to be practiced in every area of our lives. Do you and I esteem love that highly? We mustn't adopt the world's perspective of love. The world takes the concept of love and twists it and corrupts it after the imaginations of its own heart. The world's idea of love is do whatever you feel. Whatever feels good to you, do it. 
The world's definition of love flips love on its head. The world's view of love makes love self-serving. We reject that. But in our rejection of the world's corruption of love and the world using love to promote all sorts of sins, let us not overreact such that we become annoyed with hearing about love or that we give love a small place in the Christian life because we don't want to be like the world which corrupts it. No, let us take to heart what this text says. The greatest of the great is love. Let us say what God says and let us live in harmony with what God says. The way to fight against the corruption of love in our day is not to minimize love, but to preach and to live true love according to the Scriptures. True love, which is the committed pursuit of the true good of another through giving of self in marriage, in our home, in our church. Prioritize love. It's the greatest. It's the greatest of these. And what a joy it is when by the grace of God, the greatest of these prevails in a Christian home and in a Christian church. That love brings forth such sweet fruit. That love blesses so many. In the expression of that love, we catch a glimpse the glory of God, it is the more excellent way. May the God who first loved us by His Spirit so work in us that we walk that most excellent way. Amen. Faithful God, Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this triad of blessings, faith, hope, love, so very precious are they. Grant us as a Christian people to walk in this more excellent way of love, and also to seek and to strive for the cultivation of faith and hope. Grant that Christian love may be a bond of perfectness that knits us together as a congregation and as families. And may above all we ever stand in awe of the unsurpassable love of Thee, our God, towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen.